Hi, I'm Gabby Logan, and this is the II Family Money Show. In each episode, I speak to a familiar face about the role money has played in their family life and professional success. And in this episode, I'm joined by adventurer and author, Alistair Humphreys. A National Geographic Adventurer of the Year, Alistair's many outdoor escapades include cycling around the world, rowing the Atlantic, and walking across India. But he's also won acclaim for his pioneering work on the concept of cheaper, simpler, closer-to-home micro-adventures. He spends his time encouraging people to live more adventurously, but is his enterprising and often daring spirit reflected in his approach to money matters? Alistair confesses to being a bit hopeless on that front, so it helps he's married to an accountant with whom he has two children. His latest book, Ask an Adventurer, largely focuses on how to go about making a living from these travels and how he's managed to do so. In our interview, Alistair tells me how he funded a four-year trip around the world with just £7,000, how he's recently become a self-confessed money geek after years of ignoring his finances, and about the time he had a pizza delivered in Alaska. You are a very interesting man and you've obviously done some incredible things and pushed yourself in in many different ways. But where I want to kind of go is right back to the beginning and find out the kind of childhood you had that made you want to do all of these things or at least gave you the freedom mentally and emotionally to be able to do all of these things. Were you the kind of kid that was kind of camping outside when you were seven years old and hiding in trees for days on end? Um, no, not really. Um, I was lucky in that I grew up in the countryside in Yorkshire. So I had what I guess is now an old fashioned childhood of spending a lot of time playing outside, running around the fields, playing in the river, climbing trees, that sort of stuff, but no more or less than any other kid, my sort of age around there. And all through my childhood and school, I was definitely not one of the crazy adventurous kids. I was more of the uh, weedy, nerdy kind of end of the spectrum, really. And what really changed for me was um, when I started discovering expedition books, travel books of crazy men and women going off the wo- around the world, doing all sorts of stupid stuff. And because I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my own life, and I kind of felt this urge to prove myself and try and do something um, big and difficult with my life, but I wasn't very successful at sports or anything like that. So suddenly adventures and expeditions seemed like a way to go and really push myself hard and then perhaps on the way figure out what to do when I eventually grew up. But I haven't quite worked out that last bit yet. (laughs) Well, it's turned out to be quite uh, a lucrative and, uh, well, I'm I'm not going to delve into your personal finances, but you're obviously earning enough money from your books and your podcasts and everything else you do that you can keep on doing this, which is fantastic because you've managed to kind of monetize it as well and turn it into a career. Because that's the other thing. There's an entrepreneur in you because when you started out, it wasn't a job, was it? This was something that you wanted to prove to yourself. So how did you have the financial security to step off and go and do that? Because a lot of people, that would be the thing that would hold people back thinking, well, I've got my mortgage, I've got my kids. Or, you know, when you first went, how much were you thinking about the finances? Well, when I first started to do big adventures, I never had any thought that it would actually become a job. I had a, a vague, um, unrealistic, perhaps daydream that I'd love to write a book about it, but I was under no illusion that writing a travel book would uh, make me rich. Um, so I really just wanted to do a big adventure because I wanted to do it. And then I assumed that afterwards I would get a real job. So 
I decided to cycle around the world um, because that was something that was suitably cheap that I could afford. I was 24 when I set off, so it wasn't an expensive expedition, uh, relatively speaking. So it was sort of doable. And I assumed I'd get a job afterwards. And to specifically answer your question, the, the really, really important thing is that I had the safety net behind me of I trained to be a teacher. So I knew that if everything went wrong with the journey or even after the journey, I could come home and get a decent job. And I think quite often when people are talking about adventures and expeditions, there's a temptation to say, go and live your dreams, do this stuff. It's brilliant. Anyone, anyone can do what I did. But I think it's really important that I acknowledge that I did have that safety net of a decent education, meaning that when I got home, I'd be able to pay the bills somehow. Also, I was uh, young and that's good because you're quite stupid and willing to do daft stuff. And also, I didn't then have commitments of mortgage, wife, family, etc. So it's just me, the savings I'd managed to accrue through five years of odd jobs at university and then just living cheap on a bike with no regard whatsoever for anything to do with money beyond seeing how far I could cycle with the money I had available. And tell us how many days it took in the end, that first challenge. Um, well, it took me four years and three months to cycle around the world. Um, I rode through 60 countries and five continents, uh, Yeah, four years on the road, and the whole thing cost me less than £7,000, um, So, which is doable if you're willing to pay all your transport costs by just pedalling around the world, uh, crossing the oceans on boats rather than aeroplanes and then being willing to live like a hobo just sleeping wild and eating banana sandwiches and instant noodles for four years so yeah seven thousand pounds i now see as a spectacularly good investment of my total life savings at the time that is an it's an incredible amount of time and it's a, a very very small amount of money to fund that you know to, to spend that amount of time on the road and that freedom that you must have had as well to kind of you know every day you're you're just living your best life aren't you going where you want to go doing what you want to do was there a point where you thought I'm not sure I could ever see myself fitting back into normal in inverted commas society well I think I'm still feeling that in some ways I mean I see that it was a incredible experience and a real privilege but I also see it as a bit of a curse really I mean the, all my years it's quite a lot of years now since I finished that first expedition and um, yeah real I've struggled a bit with <laughs> accepting real life after those days for sure so uh, but it, I think it was a worthwhile trade-off. And when you were away and you're you're experiencing all these different cultures and you're doing, you know, kind of things you've never done before, you might never see these places again, knowing that you're going to write about it um, when you get back or while you're on the road, how does that process work? Because you'd never written a travel book before. No, I'd never written anything before. I, I thought English was boring at school, so I quit after GCSE. So um, I, I wrote a diary every day um, partly because I wanted to write a book, partly though because I was on my own around the world and I had no friends. So it's just a cathartic thing to do and just some, it was something to do. Um, and I, I wrote a blog. So every, and th this was um, a decision I, I wanted to try and share my journey. So I wrote a blog about it and, and I was doodling away in my diaries knowing that when I came home, I wanted to write. And I really wanted to write just as a personal challenge. Again, not because I actually thought that would be a, a viable job. 
And going back even before this, so you've, you've, you've trained to be a teacher. So, you know, that's a, a, a good, solid career you can you know come back to, which is a great kind of uh, safety net, as you say, um, in the back of your mind. Before that, let's go back to your family, kind of your upbringing in terms of where money featured there, because it strikes me you're not somebody that was always focused on money as being the end game. You know, you wanted to be a teacher, you want to do adventure. So what was the family kind of financial situation growing up? Did you feel very secure? Was money ever an issue? I grew up, I had a very lovely uh, family life. Uh, my mum and dad worked really hard. Uh, they were really and are still really obsessed with working hard, saving money. So good old fashioned Yorkshire, Lancashire values of just save, 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 save. Uh, so we were really conscious that money was there to be saved more than to be spent. And um, that was really drummed into us. So don't waste your money, don't waste money, don't waste money. But um, we, we had, money wasn't an issue in my childhood. Uh, we weren't driving mm. Ferraris, but it was certainly not an issue. It was, a, I suppose, a regular focus just because my parents were really keen on hard work and saving though. So would you say they were frugal? I certainly would say they were frugal, yeah. And they would see that uh, as a very, very good compliment in, and in no way an insult. Uh, so, yeah. And that has passed on to me. I So I've been always quite frugal. And then spending four years when I only had £7,000 to spend made me so conscious of money. Now, I could either buy a bottle of champagne or I could keep cycling for two more months where, you know, those sort of decisions are crazy. I spent four years never buying chocolate, never buying because I was just focused on save the money and you can get through this journey. So I suppose, yeah, the frugality certainly helped extend my journey. And I've gone on to do, so when I came home, I then started doing other expeditions and I still didn't have much cash, but I was really always conscious that you can either live cheap and travel for a long time or do it the other way around. So for example, I, I walked across Southern India. Uh, I followed a holy river right the way through Southern India from I went from coast to coast, um, six weeks of hiking through India. And that, that whole journey cost me £500, um, including the airfare. So once you're, willing wow. to, once you're willing to sleep outdoors and travel yourself, then suddenly adventure does become accessible without needing loads of money, as you would for going up Mount Everest or to the North Pole. So there are different ways of having expedition and adventure and travel experiences without having to lay out loads of cash. Oh gosh, Alistair, there's so much to unpick there and ask you that has just, you know, made my mind kind of blow a little bit. And um, how you're doing it on those kind of budgets, I, I, you know, and eating well and not not being ill. I mean, well, not eating well is part somewhere. of it. Well, I was going to say eating enough to not become ill, though. You know, you had to keep your energy levels up, so you had to get some nutrition from somewhere. First of all, um, obviously, the choice between champagne and two months of, you know, of travel. I can see which one you're going to choose. Did Did anybody ever give you a beer? Did anybody ever just say, "Oh, wow, what you're doing is amazing," and give you a treat on the way? Did you get that bar of chocolate from somebody? I would have given you it if I'd bumped into you, for sure. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I mean, people, as tra people often say, with traveling, the kindness of strangers was an extraordinary thing. And that holds true in uh, rich parts of the world and probably more so actually in poor parts of the world. The generosity and kindness of people was incredible. Um, and I had to really wrestle with trying to be taking the kindness, but without feeling I'm just taking, taking, taking and trying to give back, I suppose, in terms of interesting conversations. Uh, uh, but yes, yeah, so to cut it short, people were very kind to me. Um, one example, I cycling through Alaska, um, 
a car went on a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. A car went past me vroom, on a gravel road, cloud of dust. A couple of hours later, vroom, they zoomed past me the other way. Uh, I didn't think anything of it at the time until they slammed on the brakes and the lady wound down her window and on the passenger seat she had a, a big stack of takeaway pizzas. She'd had to drive a, a couple of hours to get takeaway up there and she handed me a pizza. She said, you know, I think my family have got enough here. Have a takeaway pizza. And she drove off and just left me literally in the dust in the middle of Alaska holding this takeaway pizza. And I just burst into tears. I mean, that's kindness and that is really how to really how to enjoy a pizza as well oh absolutely it must have tasted divine and uh, when people do things like that as well i guess it also restores you know and all of our faith in human nature at times in the last certainly this year is being tested isn't it and what we're seeing obviously around the world at the moment so do you kind of on those trips every day, are you reminded about the goodness in humanity? Are you seeing things all the time that just kind of restore your faith? Yeah, absolutely. And the news is showing us now the uh, the not so good side of human aspects of human nature. And before I started cycling around the world, I was worried about the dangerous parts of the world. And you read the press and some parts of the world seem dangerous. But my experiences of cycling through these so-called dangerous countries and different cultures, different religions, uh, poor places, was just incredible generosity and kindness. Um, I've cycled through quite a lot of countries that have featured in wars on t- on TV, and I just think of the incredibly lovely, kind, decent people that I met every single day. And my fears from before the adventure were about the dangers of humans out in the world. But once you actually start travelling slowly and simply in remote parts of the world, you those sorts of fears generally dissipate. You have to be careful, of course, and there are a few idiots everywhere, but by and large, I just was overwhelmed by the kindness of, of people out in the world. So if people turned out to be okay, what were the, the biggest dangers to your well-being on your travels? Well, I suppose it depends on the trip. So cycling around the world, the biggest danger was idiots sitting in a ton of metal hammering along at 70 miles an hour and paying no attention to the cars that they were driving. On expeditions, there's a difference between perceived risk and actual danger. You know, the things that you are in control of. So, for example, if you're rowing mm. across an ocean, you need to keep yourself clipped onto the boat with a safety lead at all times. If you do that, you're not going to drown versus the things that are out of your control, like idiots driving cars and that's just down to luck sadly when you rode it was the atlantic wasn't it you rode um you were in a um a team there weren't you you didn't row that solo and obviously some of your expeditions are, uh, have been very much on your own four years cycling around the world um, you went to spain so in spain i was following the route of a book by uh, laurie lee a guy you might have read side with rosie at school his his sequel he walked through spain playing his violin and that was one of the books that really inspired me on to to travel, to travel simply and to be a writer. And he played the violin walking through Spain. And I'd always dreamt of doing that, but I can't play the violin. I have zero musical talent. But a few years ago, I decided to just need to toughen up and dare myself to do it. So relevant to money, I suppose, I turned up in Spain with no money, no credit card, only my violin, which I'd been learning for seven months. And I just had to stand there with the open violin case and busk. So just just at this moment, Alistair, would you say grade one, two level of violin? Was it was it that kind of we're talking? Or well, maybe I, I turned up in Spain. I played for a whole month. I came home. I kept practicing for about another month. 
and then I did my grade one exam. I turned up at the place and the, the, the invigilators were all, where is your small child? I was like, nope, it is, I'm doing the exam. So yeah, so I was worse than grade one. I had no money. And again, I just had to play. And it's about being uh-huh. willing to be vulnerable, putting yourself on the line to look mm. like a total fool and to trust, again, in the decency of people. But I lived like in a month, I earned 120 euros as I walked 500 miles through Spain. And no man needs 120 euros in a month. I lived like an absolute king. It was a wonderful experience. So where do you sleep then um, on, on these kinds of trips? Key to pretty much all of these financial planning things is that uh, you sleep outside and you uh, wash by jumping into rivers and you eat whatever's cheap in the market that day. So that's that's generally my premise. But those things, I guess for some people would sound like hardships, but I love sleeping outdoors mm. and jumping in rivers. And I'm once you've walked for 20 miles, then a loaf of bread and two bananas taste absolutely delicious. So that side of things I quite enjoy. And for me... The adventure on that experience was about daring myself to get out of my comfort zone and play the violin extremely badly. That's what I like about your um, expeditions and your adventures, that you aren't necessarily doing something, you know, it's not about climbing Everest or, you know, doing something that actually lots of people are doing. You're doing things that put you in an uncomfortable position in different ways. And um, and obviously they take you away from home as well. And that's now you are married and you have children. Does that change the, the danger levels that you're willing to put yourself kind of in front of? Or does it change the amount of time that you want to away from home yeah it's very much changed both of those things um now before i was married and had kids i was pretty cavalier with stuff i didn't want to die because i really loved being alive but i was pretty relaxed about the whole thing um and and up for the sort of glory things of going down in a blaze of glory or oh he died doing what he loved i used to love that sort of stuff but now i feel very differently i have my life has a responsibility to others. So really, and also I now no longer want to be away for years or months on end. So that's completely changed my adventuring. I've been in recent years doing something which I started to call micro adventures, which was my attempt to try and find all the stuff I loved about wilderness and solitude and adventure um, and nature, all that big stuff. Could I find that in short, local, simple, cheap, close to home, achievable micro adventures that I and therefore anyone else could do in a weekend or just overnight after work. So my big adventure days have really moved on to micro adventures now. And I heard you talking about the challenge of becoming a father and how that that was really difficult for you to to kind of work out, you know, how you were going to do these adventures and keep the essence of you, which I think a lot of people will recognise that as being inherent with that new experience. Whether you're working in a bank or you're wandering around the world for a few years, it's what makes you tick, isn't it? And and so especially when you're doing the kind of job that you did. Do you call it a job still? Let's say when you're living the life that you do, because it seems weird calling it a job. I think I call it a job (laughs) with a little quote marks up in the air, I think. Yeah, and I really love that honesty because I think that would have really resonated actually with a lot of new fathers and mothers, what you said. Yeah, so I I found it really hard becoming a parent. I loved it, of course, but I found it very hard trying to, one, go away and do these big adventures because I loved them and it was very much part of my identity. But also it had by that point had become my full-time job. It was my sole source of income was the stuff that I did from these adventures. And to not be able to do that fully, I really struggled with the loss of identity of myself as a just 
me a guy, but also me, my work. I thought my work was going to uh, plummet. Um, and yeah, I really struggled with those sort of things. And I was also at the same time by trying to essentially I'd make my earn my living by showing off about myself on the internet and telling stories and writing books and things. And to to I had this online life as well as my home life. And so trying to juggle all these things in a new direction, mm-hmm. I didn't deal with very well. And if I could go back in time, essentially when I was in my early 20s and dreaming of adventure, I read books by crazy people like Ranulph Fiennes. And I really, def- and I defined the rules of my life from reading these sort of crazy books of this is the life I want to live and I just went at it full pelt and I loved all doing all of that but I didn't allow any flexibility into it I didn't allow myself to say oh I'm now 30 oh I'm now 40 oh I've now got kids how do how is my life going to evolve and uh, the Spain trip was a really big process for that in terms of me asking myself what does adventure mean now is adventure sleeping outside and walking hundreds of miles no, it isn't because I've been doing that for 20 years. That's easy for me. The adventure therefore now is do something different, play the vi- dare yourself to play the violin and try and get your uh, curiosity and excitement from life in that sort of way. And, and then can I get these sort of things even smaller and locally close to home by doing micro adventures? So yeah, I've gradually and belatedly allowed myself to evolve. Thank goodness. <laughs> it is, I think, there is a, a luxury though, I think, in being a man when it comes to this profession. Because whenever I've heard Ranulph Fine's talk, my practical side is going, but where were your kids and your family? You mean you're away from your wife for a year, you know? So uh, so those, I think it is skewed, I think, towards men because women are just so practical about how you kind of look after the family. So let's talk about your wife because she must... Have kind of you must have struck a deal, uh, did you, at the beginning, and say, look, this is who I am, and I'm going to continue to do this. You know, how does she feel about the continuing adventures of Alistair Humphreys? Well, probably like a lot of would-be parents, we didn't have all of these sensible discussions that would have been sensible to have had in advance of this <laughs> bundle of chaos arriving in our lives. So it's a slightly dishevelled and disorientated and exhausted series of figuring things out, which all parents will be familiar with. So for a while, I tried to just crack on with my life as normal and to just go and do stuff in the chunks when my wife was at home for maternity leave, for example. And of course, that was exhausting for her and not ideal and not ideal for me either going away. And it was just all quite stressful and more argumentative than I would have liked. So so I've then changed, really. I stopped doing the big adventures. I've become much more now the stay at home dad and... Yeah, it's just not possible to uh, both be a stay-at-home caring dad and to be a go-off-into-the-world gung-ho explorer. And I have absolutely no doubt that the sort of questions that uh, women like Alison Hargreaves, the climber, get grilled for leaving their kids at home in a way that dads don't. Uh, But I am now Mm. hopefully trying to redress the balance. I'm now the chief stay-at-home dad uh, I've got my eye on the clock now, so I've got to go pick up the kids after our chat here. Uh, and my wife still uh, works for full time with a very sensible and normal job as an accountant. Yeah, tell us what she does, because I do, I do think, yeah, she's an accountant, which I think is ironic, actually. Yeah. Well, well <laughs> we, such a steady, sensible job. We met and got together long before I considered myself an adventurer and long before she considered herself an accountant, when we both just considered ourselves <laughs> right, okay. carefree and happy students. And then life, it's funny, the very different directions right. life have gone. But 
but yeah, I'm pretty sure that if we met today, we would have very little to talk about. But marriage is a funny old thing and we get along very well. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's that's just as well. Um, but I think that's brilliant, actually, that you did start almost before all of this because she saw you evolving, you saw her evolving, and she knows what makes you tick. But I'm wondering if she enjoys going on holiday for £3 a day. How do family holidays work? <laughs> family holidays work like normal family holidays should. I definitely don't recommend my tips and tricks for living cheap for, for a nice family holiday. So, uh, no, we I very much separate my adventure life from my real life and holidays. And she is an accountant, so I'm, am I being, um, am I jumping to the gun in assuming that she looks after the family finances? Well, she did for a long time. So for a long time, whenever I had any spare money um, from my work, I would just give it all to her and she would pay off some of our mortgage, <laughs> or at least I think she paid off our mortgage. Uh, and that, would, that was all I would do. I'd just give her the money. So, uh, and I, I had zero interest. And I also, t- I pretty much took a willful a willful, childish disdain of anything to do with money. I'd still, I've always been quite frugal. I don't spend much, but whenever I had any spares, I had no interest in anything. So for a long time, she did. I've finally had a bit of an epiphany, but she's definitely the brains of the operation and the looks as well. So does she decide... You, you decide uh, together then if you're going to pay off some mortgage or if you're going to invest in something, would that be a collaboration between the two of you? We actually work fairly separately, really, in that I have my business and I earn the, the money that I manage to make and I do what I want with it. And uh, she has her job and does what she wants to do with her money. And then between us, we pay the bills along the way. But no, we, we're very happily together, but fairly independent within those. And in terms of the the things we do with our money, we just make our own choices with it and are, each, are quite happy for the others each to do as to whatever they want to do. And that's quite, from my experience, that's quite unusual okay. to be that independent of each other in a family. Yeah. So so if you were to, say, um, be investing in, say, uh, an ISA or something like that, would you do that? Just go on and do it yourself? So... When I tell my wife I've been on this podcast later, she will kill herself laughing. So <laughs> until until really quite recently, as I said, I just gave her all my money and she paid off some mortgage and I'm guessing did an ISA or stuff like that. I'm not too sure. Then a few years ago, I did a talk for a financial planning company and everyone in the audience was horrified that I didn't have a pension and they sort of shamed me into it. So I signed up for a company and got a pension. And then this nice man would come and tell me what to do uh, once a year. Luckily, with my wife sitting next to me, and she would answer all his questions, and I would make him tea and then completely glaze over. I had no interest or no knowledge, uh, which is really good for the family money show. But recently, we're about six months. No, but this is brilliant, Alistair, because I think that a lot of people will totally relate to that. You know, especially the kind of glazing over the eyes, going, "Well, yeah, if you say it works." So I knew I knew that money was important, and I knew. Well, I think especially with my career as an ad- adventurer, it's it's kind of a young man's game. So I'm aware that I, I need to say squirrel away some money for later in my life. I'm aware of that. I just find it incredibly boring. But then about, <laughs> about six months ago, I was out for lunch with a friend of mine and I was doing one of my childish rants about how boring money is. And she said to me, you're being a complete idiot. You're a perfectly intelligent guy. It's really not very complicated. Read these few books and come back to me. So I've become a bit of a, a money geek within only the last six months. So perhaps that might be interesting for your show to go from a total Luddite to a new 
yeah. but admittedly naive enthusiast. And my wife looks at me um, with a sort of endearing, slightly patronising look on her face after she's been an accountant for 20 odd years. And I'm suddenly newly enthusiastic. So tell me, in these last six months, then, what, what have you learned that's uh, amazed you the most or has given you kind of th- food for thought? Oh, he's rubbing his hands I'm rubbing together. My, now. I'm excited now because <laughs> finally I can unleash my mass, massive expertise after reading about 10 books. So what I've really learned is, in a nutshell, I really, really wish I'd started saving many, many years ago. Uh, I've learned what compound interest is, and I've got really addicted to compound interest calculators on the internet, which just tell you, blow your mind about how much your money grows if you save it early. Uh, there's also an amazing website called the, the Latte Factor, which you put in, if you buy a latte every day, it tells you how much that would have made by the time you were 60 if you put it, saved it away. And that also blows your, my mind. Uh, I've realized that some, some of these... Uh, um, investment companies the fees they're only whatever percentage fees actually kills you over time and that really none of this is very hard at all and now I just have taken it all back and I do everything myself I've spent a few months very much enthusiastically reading various books uh, including there's a movement in America called FIRE financial independence retire early um, of whom one of the main protagonists has the ridiculous sounding name of Mr. Money Mustache, but he's a very helpful guy. And if you Google, he's got a blog post called The Simple Maths Behind Early Retirement. And reading this blog post just blew my mind. And from hating money to finding it boring to finding it incredibly complicated, I now find it really quite interesting, but also really refreshingly simple, which is nice. I feel good that I finally got there. You said it's not um, an old man's game. Ranulph Fiennes might, might beg to differ, I guess, on that front. I mean, he's kept it going for a bit of a time, hasn't he? So, But you maybe have to adapt what you do. And you're doing that. You're diversifying in terms of podcasts. And you obviously, you've, your books have a different age ranges. And you've really got, as you say, to micro-adventures. So what's what's next? What's coming up for you? Well, having gone started my adventures huge, they seem to just be getting increasingly small as more and more I'm just realising that micro adventures to me don't feel like a compromise i'm seeing the potential of all the so much good stuff from having short local uh environmentally friendly adventures uh, so much so that i've spent the last year uh, exploring the single ordnance survey map that i live on you know, those big fold out out hiking maps you get they're about 15 miles across and i decided to spend a whole year just on this one map that i live on and I was quite worried, having spent a lot of time in a lot of countries, that I'd find this very boring. But I've just become fascinated by how many footpaths right on my doorstep I've never hiked or run down in my life. And I'm loving it. So I'm currently exploring the single map that I live on and writing a book about that. And that's going to keep me busy for a while. Are you quite disciplined with your writing? Oh. Do you say it's three hours, that's it? Or... I think you have to be. I, I don't really like writing. I like having written. Uh, it's a bit like exercise. You sort of dread it and then afterwards you're glad you've done it. So I, ha- I, I can only write through discipline. So I come to my shed in the morning and I nine o'clock I have to write a thousand words. That's my challenge to myself. And some days you can bosh that out in no time. Sometimes it's an agony. Some days there's a podcast scheduled in my calendar, which is brilliant because it means I can have a nice chat for an hour rather than actually doing any works. Uh, but I, I find it quite hard to write, but I like, I like having written afterwards. 
How did the pandemic, um, obviously it would have affected your adventures because everybody's adventures were curtailed. Um, and at the beginning when we could have an hour outside, well, that's that's nothing for a man like you, Alistair. So uh, was that as, I mean, I suppose if it, it would be mentally, um, it would affect everybody in different ways. But with the, the kind of thing that you do, how did you even get your head round how you were going to make a living on what you were going to do in life if this was going to go on indefinitely? Well, I absolutely hated the entire experience. Homeschool and Joe Wicks pretty much killed me. I did all the homeschooling and the Joe Wicks. I was often the only person in our family doing Joe Wicks when the rest of my family had refused. It was awful. Eating <laughs> Cocoa Pops on the sofa watching you. <laughs> exactly. But equally, there's the crucial disclaimer that my wife was busy in her full-time job earning money. We've got a garden. My kids are fine in school. Life was better than 99% of the world. And I was continually reminding myself that as I went out to do my hours evening exercise. And what got, what got me the idea of exploring my map was that time when we were only at, allowed out for an hour. I went, to, I set myself a mission to try and run every single street where I live um, and then map it on Strava like a geek. And I realized that really close to my home, within my running distance, there were streets I'd never been down. And I call myself an explorer and think of myself as a curious person. And here on my doorstep were things I'd never seen before. So uh, I would really just try to make myself see the opportunities for adventure rather than getting frustrated by all the constraints that were put on us. It really changed my perspective on adventure. I mean, for quite a few years, I've been getting increasingly concerned about the connection between climate change and travel. We love traveling, but with those of us who travel, we trash the world we love by doing it. And I've been coming increasingly uneasy about that and suddenly not being able to travel and just forced me to just move on my thinking a little bit and just think, well, I don't need to. I can find adventure close to home. And importantly, in terms of the work I do, I don't think I need now to be saying to people, you should definitely go to the North Pole. You should go and climb Everest when actually... Uh, that's just encouraging a problem. And I think really my adventuring and my work now needs to be about encouraging people to find nature close to home, to immerse themselves in it, to care for it and to uh, and to get all the benefits from it without doing any damage. So, yeah, it's really changed my approach to adventure and I'm not quite sure what happens from here. Alistair, I guess there's going to be some people listening who think, well, it's all right you saying that because you've done the cycle around the world, you know, and you've done these really exciting uh, trips through, you know, countries that people can never even dream of. So, so I guess there are always going to, there's going to be, a, you know, a young person maybe listening who thinks, well, I still want to do those things. And it is a dilemma, isn't it? Because we know that travel is, is one of the biggest contributors to, to the changing the planet's, you know, kind of negative effects of, of travel that happen on the planet. Yeah, I'm very, very conscious. I've now eaten all of my cake and I'm now telling everyone else they can't have any cake. <laughs> but what I would say is that if you want to go on a really big adventure, then go and do it. And if that involves flying somewhere, then go and do it. Just spend a big chunk of time there. What we don't need to do is fly to Prague for a stag weekend. That's that's a ridiculous use of flights. Yeah. What we don't need to do is fly to mm. somewhere to go and give a talk when we can do it via Zoom or even just say no to the talk. I'm not going to fly to talk. So I think it's it's not putting flight shame onto people. It's just getting people to think about it. And then best option of all, get on your bicycle outside your front door, pedal off, keep going for four years and eventually you'll get all the way back to your front door without using an aeroplane. <laughs> so there's plenty of ways of having adventure without trashing the planet. 
Yeah, although somebody setting off now without wanting to be, uh-huh. uh, you know, a party pooper is going to find the world slightly different and there are still countries where they won't be very welcome yeah. till they, with uh, with COVID. So you were yes. lucky, weren't you, to, to do the, the timing of what you did? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the, I, the thinking of what I've done now when I used to just turn up in villages and sleep on people's floors or knock on someone's door and they'd invite me in for dinner. I've, I look back on all of that with incredible gratitude. What do your children think about their dad's job? Uh, they think I'm a bit of a boring loser, don't like, a, like most p- kids, I think. <laughs> <laughs> uh, they, 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 what they do like is that I'm now here to pick them up from school every day. They like that. Uh, I think they, they find it... They they really have not very much interest is my honest answer. But does that um, do you think your kind of uh, ability to not you know to do something you really wanted to do to pursue a dream to to not be driven you know to choose a profession because of what you were going to be paid for it do you think you've managed to kind of pass that on though in any small way to them even though they're maybe not that interested in the actual journeys. Yeah, I hope so. I think I, I really don't care whether they become adventurers or not, but I really deeply care that they choose their job. And they're they're lucky, they're bright kids, so they'll they'll do fine at school. And that then means they can choose. They don't need to just follow the routes that everyone in their class is doing or what so-and-so thinks they should be doing. They really have a choice, which is such a privilege. And nowadays there's so many jobs. Most of the jobs that will be available for them probably haven't been invented yet by the time that, you know, the, the, the things they'll be doing when they reach the working market. So there's so much opportunity. So what I just try and encourage them is to be really broad-minded about what they do and to choose something that they really enjoy and that's hopefully useful for the world. And then my, with my new addition will be uh, start a pension and an ISA the moment you get your first job and watch that <laughs> compound interest rack up. <laughs> That's the new addition to my boring dad speech. Yeah, and your wife going, what? Who is this man? Where's he come from? (laughs) Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for listening. If you have time, please like and follow the II Family Money Show and leave us a review or rating in your podcast app. You can find loads of ideas on how to plan for you and your family's financial future at ii.co.uk. I'll see you next time. (laughs) 